Well, last week, I returned to my expository series in the Gospel of Mark. As I've told you, Mark has a lot of conventions centered around the actions, the movement, the doings of Jesus. It's a book of action. Mark was writing to the Romans, and they were people that knew about the importance of action. You see that in Mark. And more recently, Mark has given us two epic accounts of Jesus showing mastery over chaos, both in nature and in the realm of the demonic. One of those was before the Christmas break, when he stilled the seas on Galilee, on the Lake of Galilee, the great storm. The other was last week, going to the other side, to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, or Lake of Galilee, there expelling many demons from a man that was known as Legion. Well, today, you may recall last week I told you that really what Mark is doing is working on a trilogy, a three-parter. And we're going to look at that third part today of the trilogy. Jesus is not only master over nature, he's not not only master over the realm of the demonic, but he's also, today, we're going to see master over disease and death itself. Now, Mark's going to give us another bonus. He's also going to provide for us today another one of his Markin sandwiches. Now, if you, if you haven't been here in this series before, you may not know what I'm talking about. But basically, you know what a sandwich, you've got two pieces of bread and meat in the middle. Well, Mark does that a lot. And because he'll be starting with one subject, and then all of a sudden, he'll change leave off of the bread, start working on the meat, give us another story, and then he'll come right back to the other story. That's the Mark and Sandwich. Two pieces of bread, meat in the middle. And he's going to do that today in our text, which is Mark 5, 21 through 43. If you will, take your Bibles or your device or or, um, your uh, whatever means, pull a pew Bible from in front of you, And follow along with me for the reading of Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And again, I'll remind you, this is the word of the living God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much 
under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened for fear, happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them out, all outside, and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Father, Now will you come and by your Holy Spirit assist us to understand and apply your word and receive it with meekness that may yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness and greater faith in us. And we pray in Jesus' name, our great Savior. Amen. Well, upon hearing this section of Mark's gospel, you know that in these two 
incredible events, there's the presence of faith. And you might be tempted to think, well, that's what this is all about. The quality and the amount of our faith to receive things from the Lord and being healed and so forth. But that's not where Mark puts the spotlight. The spotlight is not on the quality of our faith. The spotlight is on the power and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, Jesus decides and has his disciples cross back over across the Lake of Galilee. They had, remember, gone to the southeastern side in the region of the Decapolis, the Greek city-states. And now, after Jesus was not welcomed, he tells his disciples, let's go home. Let's go back up to the north west, mostly north, but northwest part of the lake, to Capernaum. And when he arrives there, he's walking along once again, getting out, but the people are there. They're ahead of him. They found him again. This was home base for Jesus and his disciples at that stage of his ministry. But as I said, upon his return, he finds himself surrounded by multitudes of people who want something from him. He had already done healings. He had already done uh, miracles. He would cast out demons. They were looking for something, hoping for something. As literally Mark says, they gathered on top of him. They were so pressed in. There were so many people trying to get a piece of Jesus. Literally, they were almost crushing him in the crowd. But Mark focuses our attention on the needs of two very different but very desperate people. One is Jairus because of the condition of his little girl who is at the point of death. The other is this woman with her disease that she had had for so many years and was getting worse. One of these desperate people was rich. Another one was dirt poor. One was accepted and honored. The other was an outcast because of her condition as it was perceived in that day. So, Here's our outline. Very simple. Jesus and Jairus, the synagogue leader. Then Jesus and the woman. And then finally, Jesus and the little girl. Jesus and Jairus. That's in verses 21 through 24. Now, imagine this. In this press of massing press of humanity... All of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes the most unlikely supplicant. Someone wanting something from Jesus. But it would have been very unexpected because this man was the leader of the synagogue. He was a man of great stature and status in the community and probably great wealth. And we don't know what he really thought of Jesus up until this point, but we know he's desperate now. And he comes and falls at Jesus' feet and begs him to help 
his little girl. Well, when Jesus tells, when Jairus tells Jesus that his little girl is at the point of death, he's not talking about she's in ICU, convalescing, hoping to get better. No, he's saying she is in in state hospice care. It could come any moment now. There is no time to lose. He is playing his last card, and yet somehow, either because he's seen it, he's heard about Jesus from others, whatever, he decides to make a desperate last-minute attempt to save his little girl's life. And the only hope he has is in Jesus. Now, no doubt the crowd was confused by this turn of events. Here's this leader of the synagogue, and yet he's coming to Jesus, who is just a country rabbi, but he's coming to him and asking him for help. This probably would have perplexed many of those that were there witnessing this. Who knows what Jairus really thought about Jesus? Maybe he thought that at one point he was just an opportunist or he was a country bond. Who knows what he thought? Maybe he even thought he was dangerous. But right now, in his daughter's condition, even though he was the leader, he was coming to Jesus for help. Why? Because of his desperation. And you know what? It was not at this point for sure love that brought Jairus to Jesus. It was need. Utter, desperate need. That's what brought him to Jesus. And you know what? (laughs) That's pretty common of the way many people come to Jesus. Still today, isn't it? Do you, do you, did, when you came to Jesus, when, when you trusted Jesus and became a follower of him, did you, from the get-go, immediately just have this incredible love swelling up in your heart for Jesus? Or did maybe, when you first came to know about him and hear about him or, or hear the gospel or hear him preached about, did you have maybe something you were looking for, some void you were looking to fill? There was something that made you want, but ultimately it turns to love and gratitude. But we don't know. All we know is here's this man that was desperate in despair. And what we see is despair is often a prelude to grace. And praise God that it is so. Praise God that we don't have to come to Jesus, cleaned up, get it all right, be what, everything we should be, and have all the right motives in order to come and receive him as our Savior. We'd all be in trouble if that's what you had to do. No, sometimes people come to Jesus for all kind of reasons, and some of them not the right ones. But if they come to Jesus and follow him, and come to believe in him, the other will follow And praise God that he accepts such inconsistent, mixed-motivated followers that will come and believe and receive his son. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. John 1.12 Now Mark, 
records that Jesus didn't hesitate. He asked and Jesus said, okay, let's go. And so off they go with no hesitation. He sets out for Jairus' home to visit the sick daughter. Jairus likely at that moment went, wow, I can't believe. Maybe a sliver of hope was beginning to grow in this man. That maybe Jesus could do something. As they tried to weave their way through this massive crowd. And then, to his dismay, like that. Stop. Everything stops. Jesus stops. Somebody else has come in to the scene. Here comes the second part of Mark's sandwich. It's Jesus and the woman that now is front and center. Verses 25 through 34. There's another needy person in on that day on the shores of Galilee. A woman who had some kind of a hemorrhage. We don't know the exact nature of that, but apparently whatever it was, it literally bled her dry financially trying to see all the doctors, and yet no one could help her. Her condition continued to deteriorate. She had lost all of her means. and She was absolutely in utter desperation and perhaps would not have lived much longer unless something was done. And finally, being physically sick was not just the, the whole story. She was in that day considered ceremonially unclean. You know what that status was that she had because of that? Same status as a leper. What could you do with lepers? You couldn't touch them. They shouldn't be near you. They shouldn't go in public places. And yet here is this woman at great risk taking an incredible chance and she's in this thronging crowd and she decides I've heard about this Jesus and maybe if I could just touch the edge of his garment, perhaps if he wore the official rabbi garb, maybe his tassels. If I could just touch one of those. Now, who knows what she was thinking in her mind. Was she treating Jesus like some kind of talisman that if you touched it, somehow its properties would rub off on you and and be beneficial? We don't know. But she had enough courage, she had enough guts, enough audacity to go for it. Now, Jairus, as I said, wasn't the only one that was desperate that day. This woman was willing to violate all the rules and conventions in order to touch Jesus' garment in anticipation that he might heal her. Her faith was not well informed, I can almost assure you. It was not well informed. Perhaps it was even superstitious, as I just suggested, with the notion of something like a talisman. But it was real. It was genuine. It was real. And it was desperate. By the way, again, Is it her faith that healed her? Well, the faith was an instrument. 
But as we just talk about, when we talk in theology, is, our, is it faith that saves us? No. It is the righteousness of Christ and the work of Christ that saves us. Faith is the instrumental element. But it is Jesus Christ that is the efficient element. He's the one that makes it so. Faith is the instrument. But Jesus is the one that affects the change. So it's not the quality or amount of her faith. It was that she put her faith in the right object. She felt compelled to touch his robe. And as I said, perhaps the tassels. And as she did, something amazing happened. All of a sudden, she felt healing coursing through her body. And somehow she knew, I am changed. I am not the same. But guess what? She wasn't the only one that recognized something had changed. Jesus felt something too. He felt power leave him. And he asked repeatedly, who touched my garments? Who? Would you? Hey, did you touch? And he kept asking. Now, here we go. Jesus' disciples, always there when Jesus needed them. Always there with an encouraging word. Jesus is asking that question, and his always ready to help disciples said, you got to be kidding. Jesus, look around you. There's people touching you all the massive. But something was different. And Jesus knew it. Jesus kept on pressing the question, who? And finally this woman, in fear and trembling, admitted that she did it. And ready to accept the scolding that she knew she was about to get. Instead, what happened? She gets the kindness of Jesus and a blessing. Go in peace. Not only have you been improved your condition, he says, be healed. And that was permanent. That wasn't going to come back next week. Verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, it's one of the few times Jesus ever uses that expression. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, this incident brings up a very interesting theological question, doesn't it? God knows everything, right? He's omniscient. And Jesus is God. And yet it seems like Jesus didn't know who touched him. Right? This incident brings up this question. Did Jesus know who touched his clothes? Now, be careful for you answer. You see, in our confessions, like the Westminster Confession of Faith and some of the other great creeds and confessions of the church, we declare that Jesus is Truly God and truly man. Very God of very 
man, God and very man. He is man, true man. He's God and man. That means that his human nature was not deified and his divine nature was not humanized. They don't slip in and out. They don't bleed into and over. He is truly 100% God, 100% man. That means that regarding his human nature, Jesus was not omniscient. Now he could go and pray to his father and, and often would get answered, knew many things. But we know that Jesus did not know all things. How? Well, not only from this account, but also from Jesus' own words in Mark 13.32. Jesus said, but concerning that day, talking about a day of when God would settle accounts in the future, of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, could Jesus reveal that to, could the Father reveal? Sure, did to many things. But the point is, at that point in time, Jesus did not know. He didn't know everything, but he always was the second Adam, perfectly following listening to the Father, in communion with the Father, being everything in relationship to the Father that we should have been and should be. Now comes Jesus and the little girl, verses 35 through 43. As soon as this happened, in other words, this, no sooner had finally Jesus got her to admit it was her and gave her that word of blessing, that someone comes running up from Jairus' household and says, No, no mas. Your daughter, sir, is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Why trouble the teacher any further? Verse 35. Do you know what a zero-sum game is? Some of you in the military probably do. It sort of had its origin in the coming out of World War II. A zero-sum game basically has this premise. Gain on one side of the battle means a loss on the other and vice versa. If something's gained over here, then there's got to be something counter over here being lost. If this gets the ascendancy somehow, then this goes down. If you got a 60% part of the pie over here, it's a static pie. And if this has got 40, and if you take from that 60, now it's got 50, then that is going to come to 52. It's constantly, but it's up and down. You see, that's what Zarus probably thought about what just happened. Her gain, the woman's gain, my loss, my daughter's dead. Maybe if we had hurried and not stopped to help her, maybe 
my daughter would still be alive. Jesus would have gotten there in time. He was thinking about a zero-sum game. One loses, the other wins. But my friends, (laughs) oh, Jesus doesn't play a zero-sum game. Did you know that? He doesn't play a zero-sum game. He doesn't bless one person at the expense of someone else. You ever thought about that? He doesn't bless one person at the expense of someone else. Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. Come on. Come on. And Jairus follows him still to the home. Now when Jesus and company get there at the house, the professional mourners insert read in place of that ambulance chasers. The professional mourners are in a frenzied climax. But Jesus tells them to pipe down because the child's not dead. Only sleeping. Now, do you, not, do, you, do you think Jesus really didn't know that she was dead? She's cold as a wedge. They had been doing this plenty. They were professionals at it. They knew when somebody was dead. Jesus did too. It's a euphemism. The Bible uses it for death. But Jesus was implying something. This is not going to end that way. Everyone knows how it ends with death. These people were professionals. They knew. They had seen it over and over again. And they knew the result would once again be the same. The dead stay dead. They knew that. It was empirical fact. And so they mocked him. But Jesus says, in essence, not on my watch. Not on my watch is this going down this way. After booting out the mournful mockers, he brings in his three disciples and mom and dad. And he goes over beside the little girl's bed where she is lying there. And he reaches out to take her stone cold hand. And in Aramaic, in Arabic, I mean, um, not Arabic, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, <laughs> he, he, he uses what is translated literally this. He says to her, little lamb, get up. Little lamb, get up. And immediately, her eyes flutter open. She gets up, stands up. And as people are picking up their teeth off the floor, there is absolute incredible astonishment. Astonishingly, she did. And then Jesus says, 
By the way, mom and dad, get the girl something to eat. It's over. Death has been turned. And my friends, do you see what this is really a picture of? Do you see this as a proto, a early peak, a preview of coming attractions for what it will be for the followers and believers in Jesus when our eyes close in death? On the other side, when they open, we too will see the face and hear the voice of Jesus. When our eyelids close in death, they will open to the tender words and the loving face of Jesus as he welcomes us. And we will not be alone. We will be with believing family and the surrounding family of the people of God from every tribe and tongue and nation, a great multitude that has been cheering us on and waiting for us. What a harbinger of what will be the experience of every true Christian that puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, grave, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for that, for that first glimpse that what that little girl saw, we will see. And you will be there. And we'll be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We will not be alone, but we will be with you and glory in you forever. Thank you, Jesus, for being the master of nature and of the demonic world that it will not win and cannot, and that your purposes will stand and your kingdom will come. Lord, increase it. Make it so. Thank you that you are the one that's the healer of our diseases and you will ultimately overcome our greatest enemy, even death itself. As you did, so you have promised. This will be our experience too. We thank you. We bless you. We glorify your name. Amen.